Abolition. Abolition. So, this puts me in a bit of a, of a bind as an academic. Like, based on what authority do I even define these terms if I work for, which I do, and I continue to work until I get retirement for a wealthy white corporation that's also called a college, right? And for state entities, you're working for the government. Like when I was at UT Austin, you're literally working for the state, right? So it's between the state corporation, the private corporation, the hegemonic way in which we instruct against, of course, repression, against, of course, reactionary, but our very ability to codify these terms and then distribute them has been monetized. And that is part of the struggle that's going on now. You know, what are the old bones that we've inherited? The Paris Commune of 1871, right? It's 150 years that Marx wrote about at the same time that Black Reconstruction was happening before we were betrayed and the terror of the Klan and the slaveocracy ruling class joined with the white capitalists of the North decided to, quote, re-enslave Black people, right? See the convict prison lease system through the 13th Amendment, supposed to give you emancipation, but legalizes slavery if you've been, you know, convicted of a crime. And so this is the site of tension right now. The academy will identify abolitionism as prison abolitionism. The people I know who are organizing, who have their children literally tell me I've got two sons in doing a combined 37 years. They want slavery abolitionism. Mm -hmm. They want to focus on the 13th Amendment. But there's a debate. They do not have the tools or the networks to distribute their ideas. They have $7,000, literally, they told me two weeks ago. We already know we have movement millionaires right now. And there are distribution packets, but they happen within their own networks. This, for me, is the irony of abolitionism. You can say that Black women delivered democracy, and I just consider that more domestic labor, but, you know, I'll take it. It's better than a proto-fascist to Biden and Harris. But there is no democratic mechanism on the ground to talk to impoverished people, unhoused people. What is abolitionism to you? Like there's another narrative of the political prisoners. And I'm so glad Sharice mentioned Mumia. But Mumia is inside and ill with COVID. Sundiata Okoli. I mean, there's cancer, there's COVID, not just for those with political risk-taking love, right? But for, I'll call them the civilians, right? Who are disposable through this illness, right? So if we were to engage in revolutionary struggle, who would control the terms of discourse? If revolutionary struggle was the mechanism for freedom and abolitionism and communism, sorry, are methods, methodologies, vehicle, I, I really don't care at this point, but going back to Milcar Cabral, the source, the return to the source. We have had so many people transition violently. Civilians, 16-year-old girls shot in the chest, people choked out, but we've also lost Patrice Lumumba, we lost Malcolm, we lost Martin, we lost George Jackson. However you feel about the revolutionaries, they have an agency that is not prevalent or dominant 
and academic abolitionism. It is sidelined. So where does the agency belong? And I don't want to, you know, overstep my time boundaries. But I don't see it being recognized from the impoverished. If they ask for accountability or receipts, if they want to know where multi-million dollar distributions go, you have to speak with them. This is what Cabral says in return to the source. You cannot speak for people. You have to speak with them. And once you speak with them, we collectively learn what we need. If capital is financing our freedom movements, they are not freedom movements. I mean, that's, I mean, like an eighth grader, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be snarky, but like, how do you get into a position with, you know, imperial capitalism that it is funding both sides of the table? And how is it that we focus so much on the domestic, which is very important, but if a coup is bad, and I'm glad we started off talking about January 6th, if a coup is bad for the United States, it cannot be good for Haiti. You can't have, you know, us deliver democracy to Biden and Harris and these promissory notes of an evolutionary track towards abolitionist freedom. If we cannot control the source of violence, and I'm not just talking about local cops, at ICE, at the FBI, at the CIA, at the State Department, AFRICOM. I mean, the U.S. is still an imperial militarized force destabilizing liberation movements across the globe. So we're in a quandary living in the heart of the empire, belly of the beast, whatever name you want to give it. And that quandary would only, the pressure of it would only be relieved. New bones would only be formed if we could return to the source of the intellectual power of the people who die first and die poor. With liberty and justice for all. American dream, American man too. Shoot it, shoot it, shoot it. Them boys always shoot. And I, I, I am so tired of being insecure. So tired of. I've had enough.
Yeah. Yo, check. I am Sugar Ray Robinson, Brooklyn T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois. I'm the modern one yelling at senators, presidents, congressmen. We got a problem to Newsom acknowledgement. I am a prison commodity, not just a body you throw in the cell. For any reason, just to bother me. Just for your quota, so is rest in peace to Sean Bell. Sleep in peace every Ghana. Every street, every corner. Conspiracy, new world order. I've spoken to Mir Rice, mama. She told me he's strong. It won't be long till it's justice. They want to vote for a piece of discussion on how certain cops they shoot us for nothing. Revolution is coming. You act like a change. The land opportunity. Put me in change. The land of unity. You act like the same. Brotherhood. Trust. It's the same. America. Man, I'm like I made it up. You made it up. You made it up. You made it up. You made it up. Nigga. And I don't think I have anything else to add to that. Abolition. 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 You just heard a clip of Professor Joy James, Dr. Joy James. who is the Ebenezer Fitch Professor of Humanities at Williams College. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archive podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org. My name is Yusuf Hassan. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, my partner, my pal, my friend, my mentor, Max Parthas. Peace, Max. Uh, peace, brother Yusuf. It's good to have you back. After missing you for a few weeks, um, I'm here at the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center with Brother Tag Harmon. Peace, peace. Yes, yes. So last week we had an amazing week in the slavery abolition movement. Three states held hearings in their capitals on abolition bills that would end constitutional slavery, Ohio, California, and Oregon. We also introduced the Federal Abolition Amendment and did it like abolitionist bosses. (laughs) So once again, (laughs) you know, it's been a great week. And so this week we have something very special planned for the program. Again, we have our special guest tonight, Dr. Joy James the Ebenezer Fitch Professor of the Humanities at Williams College. So before we jump into the program, I just want to remind everyone that, you know, of course, we got dope music, spoken word, and the voices of our ancestors reclaimed without bridging the gap segment, which you're really going to enjoy this evening. So let's get it started. Max, tell us what you think about the opening clip. Oh, man, you know, uh, I've been listening to to Professor James now for some time. And I really love how she breaks things down for academics. Uh, I'm going to leave some of that space for her to talk about what we heard. 
but I did want to give, a, right. give some news. You know, it's been a hell of a week. Uh, just last week, as you mentioned, three states had their hearings to abolish slavery, and we introduced a federal joint resolution. Theme music, you know. Right, right. We replaced the 13th Amendment. Some epic things happened. California passed unanimously, right? And then we were worried about Oregon and Ohio, and they gave testimony, which Sister Hannah did in Ohio, for instance, and we heard the clips last week from others who testified in Oregon. But both of those decided not to vote that day, and then they put it off till later. Well, we just got the news in about Oregon. As of now, Oregon is on the ballot to vote out slavery in 2022. Uh, it passed with a margin of uh, 25 to 4. <clears throat> so that's pretty awesome. That that's is very good news. That is amazing. That is amazing. Right. So... Oregon joins Tennessee as done deals. All we got to do now is the people have to vote. Um, and then, in addition, we expect Vermont to pass as well. We expect New Jersey to pass. We expect California to pass. So, 2022 is going to be a huge year for us in slavery abolition. I just want to put that out there. And I'll read the letter that I got from Jordan Schott, who is the lead organizer uh, out there with Oasis working on this project. And she said, I just want to let you know. I'll let you all know that this morning, SJR 10 passed off of the Senate floor again with a 25-4 margin. This was the last major step in our legislative journey. I can't even begin to express how thankful I am for all of your individual and group support. This was a monumental effort that would have been absolutely impossible without each and every one of you. There are not sufficient words to thank you all enough, and I could ramble on for days, but I will leave it at that. Stay tuned for next steps from Oasis in Solidarity, Jordan. Yeah, she did the damn thing, man. That was awesome. So Absolutely. That's, that's how we start in the program, by winning. <laughs> Another state. And people talk about, you know, Max, when you talking about slavery is over. It, it, it isn't over, rather. It hasn't been abolished. I thought slavery was over. If it was over, what the hell are we doing? All right? Like, what are we doing right now if it was right. over? So, and, you know, and, I, we're, and we're not going to lose it. Oh, I'm sorry, Max. No, no, go ahead, brother. Add that to it. I was just going to say we're not going to lose the fact that four people voted to keep slavery in the Constitution of Oregon. Yeah, I want to call names out, too, but I'll probably do it later in the second half of the program uh, when we cover a few other things. With that, how about if we just go ahead and bring in our guest today? Um, Absolutely. Our guest guest is, of course, Dr. James or Professor James, if you feel that I, I screwed up your bio here, uh, blame it all on me because I went online and just grabbed it. I know normally uh, you don't get all these accolades thrown out of what you did, but I want to share it with our audience, okay? So uh, uh, I guess <laughs> Professor Joy James, the Ebenezer Fitch Professor of the Humanities at Williams College, author of Shadow Boxing, Representations of Black Feminist Politics, Transcending the Talented Tenth, Black Leaders and American Intellectuals, and Resisting State Violence, Radicalism, Gender, and Race in U.S. Culture. Her edited books include Warfare in the American Homeland, The New Abolitionists, Neo-Slave Narratives, and Contemporary Prison Writings, Imprisoned Intellectuals, State of Confinement, The Black Feminist Reader, co-edited with T.D. Sharpley Whitting, and The Angelus Y. Davis Reader. Uh, Professor James is completing a book on the prosecution of the 20th century interracial rape cases, technically titled Memory, Shame, and Rage. She has contributed articles and book chapters to journals and anthologies addressing feminist and critical race theory, democracy, and social justice. 
She is the recipient of grants, fellowships, or awards from the Fletcher Foundation, the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Bellagio Fellowship. And this was pretty cool. I want to talk about that, the Bellagio Fellowship, the Aaron Diamond Foundation, uh, Schoenberg Center for Research in Black Culture, the Ford Foundation, and the Gustavus Myers Human Rights Award. And last but not least, Professor James is partnering with the Abolish Slavery National Network to help develop educational curriculum on post-emancipation constitutional slavery. Abolition Today is proud to have you here with us. Welcome to the program, Professor James. Thank you. And so if y'all get to be family, brother, brother, and brother, I would appreciate if you called me sister. Okay, sister. Sister Joy. Sister Joy, you got it. Yes, we are family. You know, but I always want to respect uh, your title. You know, you earned that. Uh, but if you prefer Sister Joy, we're going to go with that. Okay. That's and right. I really love I love the way you spliced at the end, like after that, that spoken <laughs> word, music, gift, like ancestors talking to you. And then I like, I have nothing more to add, which is true. <laughs> I was like, right. oh my God, that's perfect. This is, this is the source, right, in that clip. What is the source? What you just played was the source. What y'all are doing in terms of pushing back slavery, 21st century slavery, right, is the source. And so my appreciation to join you in, in conversation and dialogue and also to work with you to the, you know, in the academic arena, however that, like, plays itself out with contradictions as well, so hopefully in contributions. Um, you know, Frederick Douglass and Malcolm X, they be riding on my back sometimes. You know, like I, I always keep in my mind what Malcolm said about if a man tells you he wants freedom in one breath and turns around and tells you what he won't do for it, they don't really want freedom. So I keep that in mind when I have to do things I don't want to do, like mess around in politics. You know what I mean? Like I just can't stand politics, but it's got to be used. I got to use this tool. Uh, and I also remember Frederick Douglass's words as mm-hmm. well to continue to agitate, 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 and to use every tool in the shed. Uh, wasn't but a couple of years ago that I just was like, you know, I wouldn't touch no politics. But nowadays I'm like, hello, Senator. <laughs> Listen, I need your help on such and such a bill. Uh, <laughs> go ahead and chime but in. That works. It, but that works, doesn't it, Max? Because, look, the enslavers use every tool in the toolbox or in the shed. And right. if they're not there, they go out and they fabricate a new tool, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not just the, the the terror of the slave catchers that you aptly described. And thank you again for your contributions on the summit of accountability for accountability in June 12th. But it's also like, you know, if you had to decode something, every tool, I don't know if there's an echo on your end, um, Every tool at our disposal is worthy. And it's kind of like Malcolm, by any means necessary, just like change of, of, you know, a noun, by any tools necessary, right? Anything that takes us an inch further towards Mm -hmm. peace and love and freedom. And so an, an inch farther away from police terror, from Machiavellian, you know, legislation, which is not just about stripping you of your right to vote, but it's really about codifying you as different forms of a neo-slave without any political power. So however you wrestle political power back towards our communities is legitimate. 
I really uh, like that. I, I just muted my mic while you were talking. Did the echo go away when that happened? It did. I got it. Mm-hmm. Okay, then I'll be – I installed a new mic today on the table so that when guests are here, they'll be able to talk as well. Uh, but I'll have to work it out so I don't mute <laughs> my bad. Um, yes, you know, I had some questions I want to ask you while you were here. One of the first things is from the clip that we heard earlier on, where you talked about the irony of abolitionism. Could you expound on that a little bit for me? Sure. I mean, part of it comes from personal experience um, in organizing with academics, which is different from organizing with non-academics. So, you know, I'm old enough to say years ago during the Cold War, I organized largely with non-academics, right? Some of them might be working in the academy, but they were not defined by the academy. I feel now in the 21st century, the academy has become looked at, um, not just by accident, as a source of activism, right? Whereas in the past, you organize with people in their local communities, or as I did, you travel abroad, and you try to figure out what U.S. foreign policy is doing to devastate and how can you show solidarity. So in the Reagan era, you know, the Contras, you know, another form of terrorism and policing is international policing, right? Um, the Contras are devastating communities throughout Latin America. I, you know, might end up in Nicaragua or I might end up in Cuba or I might end up in different zones, right? But the integrity of the organizing was having those conversations face-to-face and as difficult as they are when you meet people with few um, means and resources who've been terrorized by your tax dollars, right? Which is exactly, I mean, we know we pay for the police. We're forced to pay for the police through mm-hmm. taxation. And we have no representation over what the police do, right? Or their origin story, which is to control, brutalize us, you know, to make us a site of raw materials and labor for accumulation or idleness, you know, to shape different forms of economies including existential wealth that Cornell West would talk about when I was in seminary and he was teaching me stuff, important stuff, that, you know, whiteness is a form of currency. So, you know, the difference between the, quote, slave and the free person is shaped not just by white supremacy, but anti-black racism. So back in the day, we organized in real time in under-resourced neighborhoods in New York City, we organized in the South against the Klan. We organized in Africa. We organized in Latin America. And we were taught by the people with whom we organized because they lived the conditions and they were fighting the struggle in material ways, also legislatively, not just, you know, national, you know, government, but also taking it to the UN. Again, fast forward to the present moment, the academy has been reinvented as a source of progressive, if not radical, we could also use the term transformative, struggle. And so the ideas supposedly come from the academy. Again, I've lived on the planet long enough, traveled enough, seen enough to know that is not inherently true. Radical thinking, revolutionary love do not emanate, they are not coming from the womb of the academy. I write, you know, about the captive maternal, the womb of Western theory, right? 
And when the clip that you played when I said the two job sectors for those of us who can be petty bourgeoisie, right, are either we, wait, we work for a state university research one and we make decent money, healthcare, whatever, but you're working for the government, or we work for a private corporation, which I do. Of course, it's nonprofit because they're not going to pay taxes, but I'm still working for a private corporation. And both those entities pursue money and power. They don't pursue freedom and black love. So you can't have a womb emerge out of these sites and have it give birth to anything that's organic to black people or black indigenous people or indigenous people, just people in struggle. It's not designed for that. It's more of a mechanical womb, a factory of reproduction of ideas, markets, but it claims a revolutionary ethos that it can't honestly, you know, sign its name to. It's more like the wizard and the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. I mean, I'm sure they're better metaphors or images than they go for Dorothy, but, you know, it's like this is not your home. You can't stay in the Emerald Palace. It's a fabrication of reality. It's not the real fight for freedom. Sister Joy, I appreciate you because you pointed out that, as you said in the very beginning, this is it right here. You know, the uh, as the title of our program is today, Rebel Intellectuals. <laughs> um, there were some other things that I want to ask you about. One is in regards to you know, as we, we charge this as a crime against humanity and slavery, and then we point directly to the 13th Amendment as the legal proof that is right there, and then we point to the prison population and the justice system as a physical proof of its practice. Uh, was there a time when you weren't aware of that in being, and, and when you became aware, how did it happen? Okay, so that's my origin story into abolitionism. Um, yes, yes. Okay. Well, so I grew up with very interesting family members, very diverse parents. Uh, Like one, a mother who grew up in Mississippi sharecropping, and a father who grew up the only child taking clarinet lessons in the black petty bourgeoisie in Texas. My father uh, joined the military, then became an intelligence officer, and I think we all know what that means, right? And so I'm still reconciling with it. I did a 180 politically from my family. And so because I did a 180 and I was organizing with women in New York City when I was in grad school and some women who were aligned with the Communist Party, that's how I ended up meeting uh, Professor Angela Davis. I did not meet her in an academic setting. So I, if you read my work, you know that I don't, have a, I don't see academics as deities. I'm not, I don't need them to feed me. And I was that way even in grad school. Like I was really focused on what was going on in the streets, in the communities, the protest against NYPD violence, the protest against political imprisonment, the protest against apartheid, and also, as I mentioned, you know, the wars. So having met, you know, Davis, you know, my respect for the contributions, but I also know contradictions, um, in the arena of organizing, when I got one of those grants that you mentioned, it might have been the Ford Foundation, I decided to take it to UC Santa Cruz. Not because I was interested in an academic career. I really had no concept of one. I wasn't that interested. But I did, 
as my mother said, you can't work nine to five. You need to find a job where they just pay you to talk, right? So, because I don't listen, that was her position. You don't listen. So I became an academic so I could stop doing other things like waitressing and whatever, whatever I was doing to get through grad school. I applied for the Ford Foundation. I said I want to go to California and work with Professor Davis, and I never sat in a classroom before with her. And then I got the grant, and I went over, and Callie, as they said, I don't know who says that anymore, but California is very different from New York City, which is sort of a black international. We've been organizing, like, from when? Like, enslavement time? Like, you know, 17th century since the, you know, the Dutch, you know, people came over from Amsterdam and tried to reproduce Mm -hmm. or create wealth out of torturing us, right? So, California was where I first started to look closely at abolitionism. I sat in on Davis's courses. Um, one of them, she was uh, teaching Michel Foucault's text, Discipline and Punish. I remembered everything that the black sisters, you know, from the Caribbean, from Africa, from the South, who were in Brooklyn and attending Megar Evers when we were organizing. They were like, why are you with the white communist women? Come over here. And they just taught me a lot on the side, right? The Pan-Africanists, the Black Internationalists, that's also how I got involved in organizing around the Central Park case. Um, if you want to talk about that later, we can talk about it. But um, so what the sisters taught me was that what academics like Foucault write about this is what torture and terror is, is meaningless if black people aren't in it. It's not just meaningless, it's a lie. So when I was wrapping up, I uh, wrote a talk that ended up in Resisting State Violence, which is a book that Davis wrote the foreword for, in which I critiqued the academic um, hubris, arrogance, I don't have a word right now, right, in which they could talk about the disappearance of torture and not mention lynching in the United States because they were focusing on the guillotine in France. And I was like, wait, at the same time that you're saying the spectacle of torture is disappearing, black people are being lynched. I mean, Ida B. Wells, like, you don't read Ida B. Wells, right? No, of course not. They don't read black people. Or if they do, they don't cite them. So that's where the first tension came when I was like, okay, you're teaching this text, but nobody's talking about the anti-blackness that's radiating through Foucault's narrative. And then later I figure out that Foucault probably borrowed liberally from George Jackson, but doesn't attribute anything okay. to him, right? So again, it's not only our struggles that are stolen, our ideas of how to struggle and analyze and do theory. The concepts themselves are stolen. So Davis asked me to do a conference after I finished that year. When I went to CU Boulder, I did. I've written about it in airbrushing. Uh, revolution for the sake of abolition, so I'm not going to go into details now. But it, all the contradictions came out for me, and then I decided to only anthologize for about seven or eight years when I went to Brown University, black agency, not black victimization, even though, of course, it's real, 500 years, right? But there's 500 years of a legacy of resistance to it. And so that brought me you know, to connect with those who are political prisoners, both pacifists and non-pacifists, and actually a whole different, you know, array of ethnicities. And I found out when I was at Brown, um, talking about black agency was not a plus. 
it was a minus because people were okay if you had the story of my family member was in prison or I was in prison and now I'm out and I've come to pay my dues to society and I've redeemed myself. That is one kind of narrative, and I don't disparage it, right? I've had family members who've done time, and I've had family members who, you know, been executed on the streets, right? Um, but if you say there's political agency, there's political analysis, there's political theory, and the folks coming here to speak on campus that I invited are not apologizing for rebellion or resistance or black revolutionary love. Because I mean, I'm going to use Max. I'm going to paraphrase Brother Max. I mean, they understood this to be a slave-catching regime, right? So until yeah. you tell the enslavers to find another job, they're going to resist every form of enslavement. And if they end up going to prison, either because they did something or they did not, and they were framed, then for them, that reflects honor and dignity even if we don't agree with the choices, and definitely we don't agree with people being framed. So the contradiction back to Boulder when I was asked to do the prototype is that the academics welcome Davis as a keynote, but when Geronimo G. Jaga Pratt, who had just recently been released after being falsely incarcerated for 27 years, and he was going to get you know, a multi-million dollar settlement, I mean, the state just like takes our tax money and writes checks after they destroy families and lives. So we pay for everything. That's my position, right? Um, but the academics were uneasy with Geronimo. And I was like, he was framed. Everybody, they admitted it. They let him out finally, and they're paying him. Is there a problem? It's like, yeah, there's a problem. He didn't have the right look or the right tenor or the right mm-hmm. kind of class attributes. He wasn't going to use certain kind of language or reference for co or who had, you know, whatever academic text. He was going to tell you what it was like to be a panther in Los Angeles with COINTELPRO trying to kill you. And if they couldn't kill you, to frame you for murders you didn't do, and then 27 years later, you would finally get out. So the interest in the struggle, right, is performance-based to some degree. Because when you have the people who actually have the stories, I was there, I survived, this is what happened, my relative did not survive. My person I loved did not survive. Nobody really, I find, in the academy wants to hear the level of terror and trauma that the state inflicts. Because once you recognize the nature of the beast, meaning the imperial enslaving state, you cannot pretend it's Oz. I don't mean the prison show Oz, right? You can't pretend it's the land of Oz, like milk and honey, Democracy is going to take you forward. You just have to organize as you've been doing with every political strategy necessary, but the eye still is focused on the goal to end all forms of enslavement and terror. That's a fantastic origin story there. Wow. uh, (laughs) Like yourself, I I also, uh, my origin story includes Professor Davis. Um, when she talked about the 13th Amendment and how it was uh, left over from slavery and it allows prison to still practice slavery, that was kind of my click moment. And then I started researching more on the 13th Amendment. Uh, but also, like yourself, I, I appreciate the contributions, but I recognize the contradictions. And on several occasions, we reached out to her uh, to help us with the slavery abolitionist movement. And 
rather than focus on what we're talking about, she immediately would uh, change the conversation to prison abolition and then uh, point overall at capitalism as the problem um, and then critique it from a communist perspective, you know. And I'm thinking to myself, first of all, capitalism is not illegal, but slavery is. So that's why we're focusing on slavery. It's a crime against humanity, and it's illegal just about everywhere in the world. Uh, but it did strike me as kind of uh, strange why she would change the subject, especially when we approached her the first time about helping us with the 2017 prison slave labor work strike, which had 24 states involved, as well as uh, Nova Scotia uh, in support. And it involved, I think it was like 17,000 prisoners. And we had mm-hmm. 16 states or so that had rallies in support of it. And we were at D.C. Uh, at the time, giving speeches there, uh, along with Brother Robert King and um, a, a few others. Mumia called in. Uh, so I was a little bit confused why she would change change it to prison abolition when that's not what we're asking for. Like you yourself have said, that's not what we're asking for. And then recently yeah, again, with, well, so, sorry, go ahead and talk. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, of course I cannot speak for Professor Davis, right? She speaks for herself. But I will speak as an academic from inside the academy and having been there, you know, in spring of 1998 before critical resistance was formally launched at UC Berkeley in that September, right? Um, I'm trying to find the words for this, right? If people have already drawn up a blueprint about how they're going to run their program, they don't really have to be accountable to people who live under those conditions. They can say they're accountable, but the best way they can help, and I'm putting help in air quotes, right, is if you follow their blueprint. You could ask them, what is your blueprint based on? Did you poll us? Did you ask us what we want? Have, do, did I see you on the block? I mean, do you live here? Are you, you know, I understand the incarceration, right? Because I did the Angela Davis reader. But I also understand the way Davis was incarcerated, and I have never been incarcerated, so I do not minimize the trauma. It was an anomaly. Like, it was a jail, not a prison. There was an, another cell that, for an office. You know, Nina Simone comes and visits with red balloons, Ralph Albernoff. It's, it's the incarceration of celebrity, right? Which is mm-hmm. not, it's not anonymous, working class, poor black people, right? And it's also the incarceration of a person who's linked, let's go back to the Communist Party, who's linked to an international European-based, of course, Eastern European, Communist Party. So white Europeans are invested. And I've written about this, you know, even um, Richard Nixon, who's, you know, horrible, hated by people like, wake up hating them, go to sleep hating them, right? But Richard Nixon actually, after asserting Davis's guilt, backpedals and invites Soviet scientists to come sit in the front rows of the trial and see for themselves how U.S. democracy works. It is a show trial. It is showcasing Soviet might. U.S. might and power prowess simultaneously. Ordinary black people are not elevated because we don't have that use function or value for white elites. 
Like we're just interchangeable. As a you know, Matthew Messini's book, One Dies Gets Another, get another in terms of convict mm-hmm. prison lease system. They did like if you were state property property, they would work you to death. Before when you're private property, we'll starve you, beat you, rape you, but we gotta keep you alive so you can work tomorrow. Like if you're just interchangeable, one dies, just you know, go rest somebody else and get another. All black people don't live like that. Okay, and so there is class tension or divisions that are not acknowledged. Who do we listen to? Back to the blueprint. If the blueprint is written largely by academics and then over the years becomes more activist and they incorporate people who were, you know, incarcerated, then that's a good thing. But is that polish or is that substance? If the academics are writing blueprints for people who are, being tortured under conditions under which petty bourgeois academics, I know some of us occasionally go inside, you know, but by and large, that's not what happens to us. I mean, again, I'll use prominent academics, I know, not to say I disrespect, they're just examples. When Henry Louis Gates gets arrested, how does it end up? He has a beer summit with Mm -hmm. Biden and Obama on the White House lawn. That's not how most arrests of black people end. So the anomaly is the way in which the state apparatus, influential donors, white, wealthy leftists or powerful leftists cherry-pick us, elevate us, package us, and then we're sold back to the mass. Who has to fight under conditions of sheer survival at times, particularly if they're held in cages? So if I were just to step back and look at what academics do, I would say on some days we do very positive work. On other days, we are accumulating just like capitalists, even though we're not capitalists. We don't own the industry, right? But we're accumulating what George Jackson, and this is the 50th anniversary of his assassination, which sparked the Attica Rebellion, right, in New York a month later. We're accumulating, right, prestige and power. That's what George wrote about when he said, as a slave, the only phenomenon I care about, right, would be revolutionary struggle. Davis does not consider herself to be a slave. She may write about historical slaves or enslavement, but if she doesn't identify as a slave, then the academy is not a plantation to her. The people I roll with, who may not be, my mother would say, my late mother, like, is that the company you're keeping? It's Yama. That's who I'm hanging out with. But the people I roll with, right, they called the university a plantation. And at first I was like, are you sure? And then it was like, oh, I get it. Like, I mean, I'm a late learner sometimes. It's like, I get it. Because when it's a plantation, it is a site of struggle. It is not one of co-optation that you use to leverage your profile and your influence. It's one that you battle to the point that they want to fire you. And for some of us, they have tried. It's just like we can afford attorneys now, or we, like, share our money and, like, okay, I'll pay for your attorney this time, da-da-da. But the ones who are most prominent, right, likely do not fight the industry which leverage them to prominence. And if they want to control the blueprints for freedom, it's not going to work as freedom on the ground or inside the prison. The strike is a response to capitalism. 
that is a clear strategy to throw a cog in the machinery, as Mario Sable said about the free speech movement in Berkeley, right, decades ago. So if you're talking about strikes, if you're organizing strikes among the most vulnerable people, it's one thing to lose your job. It's another to be put in solitary confinement or beaten up, right? So if you're talking about strikes, you're talking about opposition to capitalism. And that should be really clear, and everybody should support the strikes. But I don't think that's what happened. I mean, I remember learning about it, reading about it, you know, like, you know, cutting the 2016 statement, putting it in articles, especially when I was doing homage to Erica Garner, who, who you know, transitioned in 2017, linking her struggles in Staten Island for her father, Eric Garner, with the strikes inside. But that's only because, and I'm not saying I'm better than anybody, I understood I didn't have the blueprint. I couldn't author or authorize a blueprint. I had to take it from the folks on strike or the warriors like Erica Garner, not from, I don't take marching orders from academics, particularly if I think they're marching in circles. Mm. Uh, Sister Joy, listen, I want to be uh, cognizant of our time, and I know I asked you to stay with us till 8, but as I said in our correspondence, you're welcome to stay as long as you like. We have a two-hour program, and we would uh, cherish your your time, certainly. So before... um, I go any further. What I say next depends on that. Are you available this just till eight, or will you stay with us a little longer? Sure. Well, I'll stay okay. as long as I can. I'll let you know when I have to go. Okay. Okay, that's awesome. That's awesome. Oh, so great. I want to make great. sure that I give everybody else a chance to chime in. I'm sure people, some people, want to ask you some questions or just say hello to you or whatever. Uh, our call-in number is five one five six zero five nine eight one four five one five six zero five. 9814, press 1 on your keypad so that we know you have a question or comment. People like to call in on their cell phones just to listen. So, But if you have a question or comment, please press 1. Uh, I want to say, first of all, you know, I love you to death, <laughs> to life. I love you to life. For real. For uh, real. you have no Fs to give. You know what I mean? Like, you're, you, you, you're willing to say the things you're saying right now. And the challenge and critique uh, these accepted doctrines and disciplines uh, that have faulty origin stories. Uh, you don't defy uh, academics. You're ready to critique these uh, petty bourgeois academics, as you, as you said. And uh, I'm really happy to hear that. That's exactly why we need you, <laughs> you know, because we're probably in the Okay, okay, but Max, I am a petty bourgeois academic, a full disclaimer, and my mother did say that I don't listen. So I don't you know. think I have to this <laughs> You right? might be one of those so, rare examples of uh, changing the system from within. Um, right. <laughs> why don't we we'll say see. this? I am, I am an example of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people who are educators in different forms who love black people and love freedom. And so if we're going to be disciplined by anything, it's going to be about that love. It's not going to be about a transactional bargain with some entity. Right. I I have had to accept the fact that this uh, form of academia that really uh, teaches the wrong history 
and the wrong narratives to our children and young adults all the way up through. It's one of the reasons why people never heard about the exception clause of the 13th Amendment, because you've been taught otherwise. Mm-hmm. That, that, that exists, and we have to challenge it if we expect to succeed uh, through a process that gives people the truth. Very much like what they're struggling with now with CRT and the 1619 yeah. project. But the abolition needs to be represented that way as well. And the only way we can do that is when people like you are willing to challenge what others have already said. They say, oh, wait a minute. But, but, okay, here. I'm going a, I'm to a, a jump in because we know each other, so I get to override yes. you. All yes, right. you do. You said, some, you said some really important things. But what I keep saying over and over again, right, everything I know comes from the people or the Orisha and the God that loves me. That's all I know is what they tell me, right? And so... Mm-hmm. The freedom schools that y'all have been pushing for, but you don't have it like come sit down, you know, on the bench or on the desk or something like that. You have a, like a mobile freedom school moving from state to state to state, right? So right. it's like return to the source of analysis. It is not critical race theory, even though like, oh, accolades to um, the brother. Oh, my gosh, I blinked out who was at NYU who gave up his job at Harvard so they'd hire a black woman, the one who talked about um, interest, interest conversion, right, that what happens in coalitions often, he, like, uh, wrote about the Supremes as, you know, black mythical, um, of course, there's three of them because he was, you know, we're all old enough to remember, um, but they would be our version of a court, a justice court, right? Um, mm-hmm. But anyway... So he talks about interest convergence, where the interest of those who have the least money and the least clout, right, in coalitions, end up deferring to the people who come into the coalition with the most money, the most clout, or as Ms. Samaria Rice says, clout chasers, right, the most desire mm-hmm. to have clout. So once we think about our coalitions, and we know they're important, we should think not just about coalitions in terms of ethnic or racial diversity, but coalitions across class and and across sectors of employment. So I think the question really is, what does a coalition with academics look like? And I would argue from just having listened to y'all and study you for more than a minute, right, that coalition mm-hmm. looks like a freedom school, but you control the syllabus. You choose what books are listed for study. And, of course, it doesn't have to be a formal text. It could be a piece of legislation. The source of education cannot be, you know, anti-capitalism in abstraction or abolitionism in abstraction. It has to get real and concrete. So if you go to enslavement, that is real and concrete. I mean, as much as, you know, we should read the 1619 Project and all these, like, you know, important texts that are coming out, and again, every text has its contribution and its contradiction, the source is not just the 13th, but what preceded the 13th for centuries. So if it has been 500 years of captivity in the Americas, you know, Marx knew, right? W.B. Du Bois knew in the late 1800s he wrote a text on abolitionism and communism. We know that Europe made their wealth off of our flesh. We jump-started, right, 
modern-day capitalism and imperialism. Not because we wanted to, but we got kidnapped, tortured, murdered. Then we create maroon societies and you hunt us down. Then you murder us again. Then we're supposed to pay you once we defeat you in Haiti, and then we have to pay for us. It's like it would be crazy-making without the education that y'all are spreading. So I think what would be interesting for me, and I would be, you know, up or down for, like, solidarity in it, is how you asserted your skills and gift and your domain as educators and not defer to the academics. CRT will survive in some form because a lot of it became liberal. Derek Bell is his name. After Derek Bell transitioned, yes. it became liberal, okay? It was really hardcore. It was like if you could do coalitions with anybody here who is not black and committed, you're going to end up with compromises you don't want. That is not the narrative of academic abolitionism. It's more upbeat, like a nice tempo, you know, whatever, whatever, right? It has promissory notes it can't pay on. But it wants you to align with conventional politics, conventional education. So I say it's not enough to teach CRT unless you're just going to teach mostly Derek Bell. Then I'd be like, okay, with that. You have to teach anti-enslavement. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, continue. I thought you were done. No, I'm sorry. I don't want to, like, be long with it. But if if you – if y'all are doing freedom school, if you said to people, if you want a good education, I mean, I'm not saying don't pay the forty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 to the private school, you know, where some of us teach, whatever. I mean, go ahead and get the degree, like, because we can't really give you a paper unless it's legislation that helps freedoms, Right. But if you really want to be educated, you need to study with us. Because so many people, I feel, are still on the sidelines. Like there's a kind of, it's a forced passivity. I mean, look, you terrorize black people for half a millennium. (laughs) People are like, I'm not sure I want to get involved, right? I totally, you know, understand that. But as I told you, I grew up in a military family with someone who fought for the imperialists. So I was socialized you know, on the basis of imperial armies. So, you know, I think I have an idea what warfare looks like in different manifestations. If you want to defeat your enslavers, you have to become engaged. But people want to know how we're doing this, not just why we know we need to, but is this even feasible? And I think, like, with the different toolkits that you're putting forward, you you are clearly saying it is feasible, even if it's like we get an inch every year, right? But I would argue the education inside the academy could end up co-opting your educational content. And then people don't know the authors anymore. I agree with you a thousand percent. And as I said, because I recognize it, whether we want them to or not, they're going to do that, try to do that, we have to offer our resistance. And as as far as with an academic caucus, bringing that together, it's part of uh, other committees that we're forming and have formed, like a political committee, we've got a legal committee, we've got a communications committee, we've got a federal committee, which, as you heard, just launched uh, basically the 28th Amendment on Juneteenth. And we've also got our international committee because we know that this problem is a global problem with prisons for profit. So we're working with the United Nations and uh, 
friends outside of the United States in order to to make this change that is necessary. As you said, we've got to use all the tools in the shed. And academic uh, academia is one of those tools. And whether we want to or not, they're going to prevent, present whatever uh, narratives they want to present. And we have to be able to challenge that to some degree. Yeah, I totally agree. And I'm, I'm glad, I mean, there are all kinds of academics inside the states, but also internationally, right? So there's a global socialist um, alliance, which is most abolitionist alliance, right, which is mostly academics. And there's Middle Eastern alliance of abolitionists, right, who, you know, I've in different ways been communicating with and saying, how are you aligning with the black liberation struggle, not just in the U.S. and Americas, but like globally, right? So these are conversations that are fruitful. And I agree with you. Academics have a role. Like, again, if I have been in this job for these many years or decades, I hope that I've made an impact on some students who have decided to pursue work, whether it's legal defense or whether it's academia or whether it's economics, that benefit our people and keep them from being ensnared by the state. I, I wondered, though, if we can, and maybe this is what we do in the committee, if there's strategies to block co-optation, meaning that we, you prioritize interviews, right? Like in, instead of people just coming and taking your stuff and forgetting to quote you or putting you in a footnote, you can say, I'm happy to speak with you, and you're probably already doing this, but the interview format allows you to dominate. I mean, the one thing I did coming out of Boulder after I did the conference that Professor Davis asked me to do, and then, you know, essentially I got kicked out, right, because I was like, it doesn't make sense. I can't do this anymore. So I wasn't invited to Berkeley. I was told, well, if you want to pay your own way and, like, you know, submit a proposal. And I'm like, wait, I just organized by myself with no money from y'all the most expensive conference in the history of this university to help you launch your thing. And then I'm supposed to, like – have you reviewed to see if I'm worthy of paying for my own ticket in the hotel to get? No. So buy, right? So they became a mutual buy, right? But one of the things that was useful, even when it doesn't go well, is everything is an instruction. If I hadn't done states of confinement, nailed it inside, had a panther say, this hit academic, whatever you just did, thank you for the free book, but it doesn't represent what happens inside. I would not have spent about eight years anthologizing, you know, basically political prisoners, people who fought for our freedom, who fought against enslavement, right? But that's the thing. It's the lowest level of academic production to anthologize people, particularly if they're not famous themselves. We're going back to, do you want Geronimo Pratt to speak? No, he's not famous, right? So if you're Anthologizing people who are incarcerated, they're brilliant, but they don't, where's the cachet, where's the glitz, where's the glamour, where's the, like, were you at the conference in Paris? None of that is appended to them. It's like, where's the struggle, where's the love, where's the legacy, the strategy, and revolutionary love? Those are the three templates. So I'm wondering how we could re-engineer some of the focus in the academy, right, to shift to the organic intellectuals, guerrilla intellectuals, and prison intellectuals, whatever the, the title is going to be, not as raw resources to be mined, but as teachers, 
And so it's a different kind of schooling, and that means it's a different kind of pedagogy. It's not so much, I think, Paulo Freire, what he was doing in Brazil, or what he was doing in Geneva. It's what happened when he went to Africa, right? And the mm-hmm. indigenous Africans taught him. Like, this is the beauty of what y'all are doing. What does it mean to be a learner and a teacher simultaneously without any possibility of prestige and power from the state or its funders? Which is what does it mean to love knowledge, even if it hurts because it's so traumatic? Sister Joy. Um, thank you for the answer. As far as how do we block being co-opted, there are some tactics that we are using that I'm not going to go into too much detail on air here. Uh, off air, you and I are going to have several conversations, I'm sure, in the near future, and I'll, I'll give you those answers to the best of our ability. But there is uh, two things I want to do. One, I want to open up the mic for other people to get a chance to ask questions or make a comment, like my own co-host, who's been patient <laughs> to hear Thank you, Yusuf. And two is, I, I want to tag into your mind something that is literally life or death and see what it is you think we ought to do about the circumstance. But first, let me open up the mic. So make sure before you got to go, you let me know so I can ask that last question, okay? Uh, Brother Yusuf? So it's 8 o'clock, Max. What do you, how do you, how do you want to handle this? Let's go ahead and continue the conversation for a few minutes more. Let me get you the say what you want to have to say, and then I want to give Tag a chance to speak to Sister Joy. And then we'll go to our music break, and if Sister Joy wants to continue with us after that, we'll continue the conversation. You know, I'm I'm loving everything uh, Sister Joy is saying. I mean, I'm just sitting here just listening, absorbing everything she says. Uh, <laughs> if I feel as though if I just say ABC, she has something ready to just go ahead and give us some really good knowledge on that, and I really appreciate that. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at your list of uh, works and, you know, transcending the talented 10th black leaders and American intellectuals, and I'm hearing you talking about the responsibility. And when it comes to history, like what is the – to the one teaching the history, first of all, why do we teach history – and what is the responsibility of the one doing the teaching? I appreciate that, right? Because, I mean, the reason I could stay in this job is not just because, you know, I have flexibility, you know, flex hours, which is true, but because of the students. And I try on my best to ask myself on a regular basis, what is my responsibility to them? And so I always mix up the syllabus, right? Like we start with whatever I write on the syllabus, but then if I feel like it's not clicking or I have to add more things, so I add like Rebel Diaz or Frank Chapman's interview with Jared Ball on Chapman's recent book, um, Marxist Leninist Perspectives, right, on Black Liberation, or a clip of James Brown the animated one that came out after he died singing It's a Man's World, and you see him from sharecropping like to mansion, but just totally depressed, right? Trying Mm -hmm. to figure out where do we fit in this world. So it's organic. Like you're always on your toes. It's like, you know, y'all are, I think y'all, most of y'all are parents or whatever. It's like raising kids. You could come with a script, and they're like, nah. (laughs) 
you just either you're going to force them, which is not preferable and it doesn't really work, right? Or you're going to get down on the floor and learn with them. And so it's that humility that we have, like on good days, right, that allows us to go forward. In terms of all those books that y'all mentioned, none of them came out of my dissertation. I mean, I was trained literally in political philosophy by Republicans. Right? And that just sounds like a torture zone. But like I told you where I grew up, you know, I have a high tolerance for pain, right? So it's right. just sort of like I write on Hunter Rand, a German uh, Jewish philosopher, right? who has a, some real animus for black people but does some really interesting work. But because the people on my committee, all white men, presumably Republicans, and hostile to blacks, hostile to women, hostile to queers, hostile to, like, you know, anti-imperialism, I did my defense, and then I walked away without asking them a letter, which means I couldn't get a job. So I ended up in seminary working with Cornell West and James Cone, and then, you know, focusing on Ella Baker and her love for us and the freedom struggle. And, you know, she, if I recall correctly, gets fired by the NAACP when she returns to the source and she asks black families in Florida who are being firebombed by the Klan and I believe the 1930s, what do y'all need? And they told her a certain kind of technology, and she's like, I can see what I do. And then she's like, you don't have a job again. I mean, it's the same way with Ida B. Wells and the NAACP. She's invited to the founding conference with Debbie B. Du Bois and Mary Church Terrell, but Mary White Ovington, a white philanthropist, who's, I guess, paid for that conference, right, in Niagara Falls, I believe, should, they're like, Wilkes has got to go. I mean, she's aligned with the sharecroppers. She, like, disguises herself and goes into prison to hear the black men and take depositions. She tells the Klansmen, people trying to kill her, that she's not playing and she's not a victim, Right. So mm-hmm. it's this organic way that every book I did, except I never turned the dissertation into the book, which is mostly what academics do. You do your dissertation for years. That becomes your book. That's how you get a career. Um, Transcending the Talented Tim, Charlene Mitchell, black communist, I believe she's in her 80s, still in Harlem. She's the one who recruited Angela Davis into the Taylor Mumba Club. She told me years ago, go to the Schomburg Library in New York City, read every memoir W.B. Du Bois wrote and focus on the talented 10. And what Du Bois says, because for me, they're the petty bourgeoisie and, you know, today we're talking about academics, they will betray the working class and the struggle. And I did that. The other books resisting state violence, as I said, I've been in different countries. A few look like a war zone. That reflects that. Everything I've written is not tied to my you know, whatever's in my brain, it's tied to what I learned from people in struggle who love their community. It didn't come from the academy. None of my books are authored from the academy. They're all responses to organizing. And I think that's what makes me and the crew I aligned with, and our numbers are not large, that's what makes us actually opponents to the academy even while we work within it and it pays our bills. We're not loyal to the academy. I mean, I will cover my classes, teach my students, and I care about them. And they care about me, especially the ones who lean a little more critically, you know, and they're thinking about imperialism and racism and anti-blackness. 
But I don't work for the academy on a spiritual mm-hmm. intellectual level. I work for the deity, the Orishas, my ancestors, and the people who are not going to be pimps. Okay, I do, you know, I'm not just working for every black person because they're black. It's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So if if this is the matrix of what learning is in the most humble form, it is the learning in the most loving form that I've been able to figure out. And it's always collective. It was never anything else but collective. I thank you so much for that. <laughs> you know, I have a million questions, but, you know, we don't have a lot of time, and I know people are just lined up ready to ask you questions, so I'll definitely pass the mic. But I definitely appreciate that answer. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to have one more question come in, and it's from Tag Harmon, who's here at the Paul Cuppy Abolition Center with me. Uh, I've been here for a couple of weeks uh, donating his time. Thank you very, very much, brother. And that's helped Thank us you. with hosting the past few weeks as well. So, Tag? Peace, peace, uh, Sister Joy. Uh, greatly, appreciate peace, the, greatly appreciate the discussion overall and, and all of the work, of course. And uh, I guess I'll just do what I can to point toward uh, the, the question that is uh, within this. But there's, there's so much that you raised. So just going off, for example, you know, some of the ancestors that you, you just spoke to, um, you know, Baker and Wells, um, and, 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 you know, the, the importance, the critical importance of, uh, of this question of legacy and strategy and revolutionary love, you know, um, and you also spoke to these themes um, recently, just this past week, uh, in the context of In the Spirit of Mandela, the, the campaign um, around the six basic charges, so so um, so much connected to these questions of international militarism and uh, slave patrolling, and and how uh, the mili- how military and uh, policing uh, institutions are so um, very much connected. Uh, my 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 question has to do uh, with Sister Asada Shakur. You know uh, the the revolutionary who who uh, you know was was able to escape bondage who you've written on extensively and um, you know you raise this question in framing the panther uh, on the very first page uh, as regards uh, Sister Asada um, that she is unique not only because she has survived in exile as a political figure um, despite the U.S. government's bounty but uh, but also because um, she has, she may prove to be quote beyond commoditization in a time in which political leadership seems to be bought and sold in the marketplace of political trade, compromise, and corruption. And uh, you know, just connecting to so much of what you've spoken to already about the academy and co-optation uh, and 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 the the very valid and you know and constant concerns uh, there. Um, how do you see? Firstly, um, Asada, Sister Asada Shakur's um, o- overall impact and uh, role as regards uh, sh- uh, struggle and uprising, uh, in, especially in this part of the world, in, in the years since this was published and in, in re- recent years. And also, um, to what degree, how, how does that relate to 
um, how vivid and, and clear Sister Asada has always been about prison slavery and the fact that sometimes that question of 13th Amendment um, allotted or allowed prison slavery doesn't always come through with clarity, especially in the academy, you know, as you pointed out, but in many other spaces where um, her name is often invoked. Thank you for that, Brother Tanag. Um, there's a lot there. I'm going to try. Um, it may take me a while, okay? Um, I don't know if I've ever written. <laughs> this is such a proto-fascist state right now, but okay. So I've been to the island and I've met everybody, okay? And it has a real impact on you when you're able to meet people who you only um, encounter in text or books or in communique. So in the in the womb of Western theory, which I wrote about five years ago, um, about the captive maternal, it's online, I juxtapose um, Asada with an Iraqi uh, woman feminist who's doing a TED Talk, because I saw her TED Talk, and she's like, this is how we, you know, escaped Iraq. And I was like, well, yeah, you know, the USD stabilized the Middle East. It's not funny, but like I said before, I have, like, anger issues, so I laugh when I'm really pissed. And, um, you know, so I, I open it by saying this Iraqi woman is going to immigrate to the U.S. and then been on a TED Talk. So she's fleeing or she's democracy-seeking, right? She's seeking democracy. And then I have a, a quote from the communique from the underground about the sister. And I say she's democracy-fleeing. So how do people seeking freedom come here, but the people who built this country really who resist terror are forced to flee it in order to have any nominal life outside of a cage, right? And I wrestle with that for about 40 pages about the captive maternal, right? And I've also written where I juxtapose her with Ida B. Wells because I'm trying to figure out these different modalities of not just struggle but sensibilities, like what is our consciousness? And so Asada does represent, right, some of the most militant consciousness of black desire to be free and black ethics for honor. So it's not just freedom, like, yeah, everybody wants to get away from the lash and the cage, but internally, this is what I mean by sensibility, we are an honorable people. Like, just because you had, like, organized crime rolling for half a millennium does not make us less honorable, even though we've mutated under different forms of suffering. And that's what I see when I, when I read her and think about her. So I was introduced to her work when her book came out in Harlem. And this had to be in the late 1980s or 1990 or something. And these sisters who had been in the party, Harlem party, held a, a book launch, right, in the federal government building, which was just, I was like, who gets to do this? This is when black people really controlled Harlem more, right? So you have somebody wanted by the feds. Her book comes out from, I believe, a London publisher, and these black women have a book launch inside the federal building in Harlem at the Adam Clayton Powell, right, building. Huh. And I was like, wait, I'm going to go through the metal detectors and check this out. And I do, and I buy a copy of the book, and I'm mesmerized. But I'm mesmerized by the solidarity of the sisters and brothers. 
who play the contradictions. We know it's a federal building. We pay taxes. We got access to the building. Like you can't do it today, right? But you could do something. You could pull off something like that decades ago. And they know the satire because it's part of the politics, right? Like when Asada writes America with three Ks, right? And says she can't abide by Lincoln, right? Because he was like a transactional politician. Like you free him, you don't free him. Should we let him fight over oh, losing the war? Like Du Bois says, 200,000 black people fight, which is probably how the North won, but not our freedom. They stabilize capital, right? And so... I have the book, I go back like to Brooklyn, and then a year or two later, I have my first job in women's studies at UMass Amherst. I teach Asada's book, her memoir. I teach Davis's autobiography. I teach the biographies of indigenous women, Latin American women, so on and so forth. UMass Amherst flagship, working for the state again, right? Number one, research one, and Amherst, like totally white, bougie zone. And some really racist white people, like you try to cross the road and they speed out. It's like a really, you know. So what happens is I watch my white women students and what I call white women studies because that's essentially what it is. The only book that captivates them is Shakur's. And I'm like, wait, how does that work? Like y'all have the least in common. You have more in common with Davis who went mm-hmm. to like high school, like, in a private white high school in Manhattan and then went to Brandeis and then went to Frankfurt and then went to UC San Diego and mostly lived in white neighborhoods or when they were in Alabama in the bougie black neighborhood, right? You have more in common with Angela experientially than you do with Asada. And your militancy can't be anywhere near Asada because, look, she spelled America with three Ks, and you know what that means. It didn't matter. It was like Asada reached across gender, race, ethnicity, ideology, the poetry, the power, the voice of the people, Arisha talking, right? They're like, I need to see my baby. Grandmother told me the dream. I'm going to be free. I need to raise my own child. Enough with y'all, right? I'm out, right? All of that is there. Everything you want and everything that terrifies you, because who wants to take the risk of being a rebel? But everybody wants honor. You can't get honor without rebellion. And I don't care if it's just talking back, you know, to some racist academic or something like that. Honor is honor. I don't care how you do it. Every day you try to eke some out, right? So when I see the sister in the ray of her power, her beauty, I see us collectively. But then here's when the warp comes in, right? Well, first the good things before the warp. So because I know, however I meet them, I know, like, people who are in the party, when I travel abroad, I can meet, you know, people who are from the Harlem branch and who train people who are I'm close to, which means I can have private conversations without the general audience present. And I can better understand contradictions. When I come back in the States and I see over the years that this liberation persona is now becoming a kind of um, symbol of something compatible with bourgeois or petty bourgeois 
black academics, it's, and it gets weird for me. This is what I mean by the contradiction. I remember those white students who I'm like, know they came from racist families because they come crying. I would come in anti-racist. My family's going to kick me out. And I'm like, I don't know how to help you, but stay in there, right? <laughs> that's not my problem. I can't help you. Like, go talk to a white faculty member, and hopefully they can rein in their racism and help you get through this, right? I can't help you reconnect with your, you know, clan family members, right? But somehow the class division and the ideological differences are, like, pasted over with symbols. So I know people, like, hate me already, so I'll just go for it. So, like, the whole construct of Asada's daughters, and I raised this years ago when I was giving a talk at Harvard, and somebody's like, what about Asada's daughters, this organization for me? I'm like, which Asada? Asada doing sickle cell testing? in Harlem, which is basically social work that we need because, you know, the white government kicked us out of all, you know, benefits. You know, the breakfast program we know that is national came from the Panthers breakfast program, right? So are you talking about Asada, she was doing basic survival, got to keep the babies alive, get insulin to the elders? Are you talking about Asada when she realized COINTELPRO was trying to kill her and she needed to survive and the movement needed to go underground? They couldn't answer because it wasn't going to be the latter Asada. Not if you were going to get a degree from Harvard and then want to teach there later. It would always have to be the social worker Asada. And I'm not saying Asada was a social worker, but the caretaker that stayed within the realm of delivery of resources without making demands upon the state. One, because you're maroon and you know the state's not going to do anything, but in the 21st century, the argument is the state will do something. And I agree, Biden is better than Trump. Can we move on, like, to the real deal, right? So the real deal is, can we tolerate black levels? I'm not sure we can writ large across all classes and aspirational people who want to move into the middle class. So when I say, which Asada's daughter, and you can't answer the question, that tells me that you split Asada in two. The rebel doesn't really exist. But you love the poetry, the imagery, the fierce, you know, fight back narrative, but you probably don't plan to do any fighting yourself. And I'm not talking about extra legal stuff. And look, we're not at the stage where COINTELPRO is looking for it. I mean, one, they know where everybody is already, but they're not really looking for us because we're not doing that kind of stuff. We're all working within the legal parameters, right, of struggle. But it's we right. desire to be revolutionaries that we're not. And then if we use, like, Asada for, like, a makeover, then you can claim to be anything without the risk, right? And so you're right about Asada's daughters, but even, like, the Panthers have said, did you just make Asada into some, like, black Madonna? Like, this is this an abstraction of the real Because the real is she got shot with her hands raised. So the real is New Jersey troopers trying to murder you. That's the real. So if you want to stay in the zone of the real, the next question I would have, what is your strategy for dealing with the real? It's not enough to have a T-shirt with Asada on it. I need a real strategy because Asada lived, was caged, tortured, They tried to force, right, an abortion on her. Then through a collective freed, and the people in that collective pretty much, you know, 
demise in prison or came out a little bit before they died of cancer. I'm thinking of some particular folks. And like, if you do on the level of extraction, then it's like most of black suffering. You can monetize it. You can use it for currency. You can write the next book or chapter. And again, I'm petty bourgeoisie. I don't make money off this book because nobody's buying them. But I do like try to get the PDF and upload it like for free read this if you think it's useful. So we have all these beautiful people who love us. And I would close by saying like in Warfare in American Homeland, which people thought was problematic and I wasn't sure they would publish it. They're like, You're declaring war on the US. I mean, why do you have this title? We work it. It's like, okay, all right, whatever, no, stop, leave me alone, right? But in Warfare in the American Homeland, the Duke Anthology, I think it was a bit frightening to people because, you know, Asada was in it, George was in it, the Afro-pessimists were in it. You know, Manny Marable was also in it, so it wasn't that, you know, quote, out there. <laughs> but in it, I wrote about the good woman and the good soldier. And I wrote a text, and then in the margins, I had all this horrific violence against women, right? Domestic violence, battering, rape, sex trafficking, so on and so forth. But I had a quote from Asada about when Sophia Bukhari passed, right? And I had brought her to Brown when, you know, I said I brought different folks. So she'd been in the Panthers in Harlem and then in NRA and then captured, incarcerated for eight years and the state did manage to force her hysterectomy on her, right? So Asada says when Sophia Bukhari dies, and I hear through former political prisoners, their position is Sophia died from a broken heart, right? Her mother had just passed. I hear, and I read Asada in her tribute, may Sophia Bukhari get more love, more honor, more care, than she ever received in this lifetime. And I would say that's not just a prayer. It's also a cautionary tale. We have not protected the incarcerated. We have not protected the activists who rebelled and risked everything out of their love of freedom and our love of us as a concrete manifestation of a people who need to be free. And so given that, I, I'm blessed by having met, having interacted with, having met the people that she taught or groomed, but I'm also a little haunted by the fragility. And I'm just going to be clear here. This support for Barack Obama after his DOJ headed by another black man, Eric Holder, has a blood black FBI agent come on the camera and basically put somebody who loves people and fought for them on an international terrorist list, which is essentially a shoot-to-kill list, right? right. <laughs> you know what a campaign for Obama? No, I voted for him in 2008. After that, I was like, no, we need, I crossed the street. Mm-mm. You can't mystify violence against black people. And you can't pretend that we didn't have people who risked everything for our freedom. And you can't turn them into some kind of symbolic register poster on your wall or T-shirt on your back. If you're going to engage honestly, 
It has to be with humility, and I'm pretty sure it's with some degree of fear. Because this state is predatory to the max. And it gets away with killing and disappearing a lot of people. And those it doesn't kill, it tries to crush or cage. So I don't like its attention. But I need to be honorable to live with myself. So I am not going to have a derivative of Asada and then hug it and claim that I'm a revolutionary. I'm going to struggle to the best of my ability to focus the lettering that I write and the analyses I try to form collectively with a state that is spelled with three Ks by a beloved intellectual who loved us. Sister Joy, thank you so much for that answer. Um, much appreciated. All right. Uh, here's what I'd like to do. Um, normally, we make some clips of music throughout the program, but this conversation has been so vital and so vibrant that we just wanted to keep it going. I do want to ask you one uh, question, as I mentioned earlier, that is a life or death question. And what you just said led up to this uh, perfectly. Uh, we have at least three organizers inside. Uh, who lives are under threat for what they've been doing with the slavery abolitionist movement. You probably already know about the new Hannibal Rostam and Kinetic Justice, formerly of the Free Alabama Movement, right? Uh, they ran a program mm-hmm. with us called uh, the uh, Live from the Plantation for 28 Live from the Plantation. Right. And, and because of their efforts in organizing the prison slave labor work strikes, doing the programming, stuff like that, Banu got shipped to a prison where he, they know somebody wants to kill him. So they're setting him up to be murdered. Kinetic was brutalized uh, by prison guards, and he's still in the hospital right now, prison hospital, with a fractured skull. And then Samuel Brown <laughs> co-authored ACA3, which is the bill to end involuntary servitude in California, and who's been working with Senator Kamlager via a phone attached to the wall in prison to help end slavery there. Uh, just got added, uh, 15 years added to his sentence and denied parole when he was supposed to be released four years ago. And this is all retribution for their efforts in organizing. What can we do to help mm-hmm. these brothers? Wow. Okay. I'm going a, I'm to a, I'm gonna try. I think we should dog every dog. Because verb is that we should appear at every venue where anybody claims to care about black people, especially people who make money and prestige out of those claims, and point out the vulnerability to assassination. And as important as dealing with Community violence, civil violence, police violence is some of that violence, I don't have a percentage, is against civilians who are not particularly, because some of them are babies, right, fighting against the state repression of us, right? So every abolitionist, whether they're global, socialist, Middle Eastern, critical resistance, whoever is the latest iteration of what abolitionism is, out of the academy, which has a lot of money and a lot of clout, 
they need to know there's an assassination list. And just as we know the names of Mumia, Sundiato Coley, right, Leonard Peltier, Mutula Shakur, and others, and so these are the people I've been focusing on, you know, they're in the anthologies, right? But I also know that the state has continued to create surplus torture against political activists inside. And look, I said this at the beginning, and so I'll say this at the end in terms of our dialogue and my gratitude that we could be in conversation. You have the template. You have the announcement. This is the core. You want to go to the pulse of the machine? You go to its capacity to torture and disappear activists and revolutionaries inside. It's easier to do inside than it is to do on the streets. The streets seem to be just random, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse, like I call the teenager, serial killer kind of stuff, like random shooting up black people, right? But our leadership cadre has to survive or we do not survive in struggle. We survive as slaves. That is not an option that gives life or dignity to our children or honor to our Risha or our deity. So I would everywhere, and I will start doing it myself, I will look over the data that you sent me and send me more. I will raise this question consistently. Like, what about, how about, have you checked on fractured skull, attempts to kill, assassination list? We mourn Patrice Lumumba, 61. We mourn Megar Ever, 63. We mourn Malcolm, 65. We mourn King, 68. We mourn Jonathan Jackson, 70. Before that, Fred Hampton, 69. George Jackson, 71. Amilcar Cabral, 73. Enough of the killing spree. Enough already. It's going to cost you. I don't care, like, you know, like, we strike, we, like, boycott. I will stop buying Stop buying your shit. I don't care. Like, I'm sorry, like, I'm not living in a morgue. I'm not raising my kids to be comfortable in a morgue, right? So the academics need to get on board. And, like, if y'all were going to stalk me and start chanting, I'd be like, fine. I like, that's your right. You're supposed to do it. It's what the kids do on Twitter. Like, I'm not on social media. I'm like, can you be nicer? And they're like, no, because we got betrayed. And I'm like, okay, well, do your thing. But, you know, I wish you would be nicer. But they're like, nah, uh-uh, not doing it. And I say, okay, well, you know, what's righteous is righteous. John the Baptist, locusts and honey until somebody tries to take your head. But a security apparatus, so they can't get your head. What are you mm-hmm. owed from academics in the black petty bourgeoisie? You're owed a security apparatus. We don't have to agree with your ideology or your tactics. We just have to agree to keep you alive. If we don't, we have no credibility. And you can tell everybody I said that. I will, mm. and thank you. Thank you. Um, what we're going to do next is I want to say those brothers' names one more time and where they're at, and then we're going to take a music break. When we come back on the other side of the music break, I want to get final comments and uh, that you might have, Sister Joy, and uh, we'll go into our last segments after that. Uh, so um, let me go ahead and 
listening to this music. You're listening to Abolition Today with Yusuf Hassan and Max Parthas. Brother Tag Harmon's in the house here with me. Uh, we're built. We are on abolitiontoday.org and available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Also streaming live simulcast on the Black Talk Radio Network. We're going to listen to this track and we'll be right back after that. Abolition. 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 Mike Huckabee spoke to conservative Iowa radio host Jan Mickelson, and he made an outrageous statement on the issue of criminal justice. Now, Jan Mickelson is most known for advocating slavery. That's literal. We covered this story on this show. Uh, He said that we should give undocumented immigrants a certain amount of time to leave the country, and then if they don't, the state should own them and force them to do labor. There's another term for that, slavery. Uh, Well, let's see what these two guys want to do with criminal justice. Our criminal justice system uh, is taken over by progressives, Mm -hmm. just like our failed uh, government education system has been. And they've turned it into sort of a combination uh, criminal store where we store people we don't want around us for years, and we bill the taxpayers for that. But there was a, a woman here in Iowa that went went for a, a, a job, and and she became a bookkeeper at a Creston, Iowa car dealership, and then she ripped them off about four hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars worth of uh, bookkeeping errors. <laughs> That's a lot of cars. <laughs> yes, it is. That must be very. It previously was until they encountered her, it was seemed to be in the in the black. But 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 they uh, they're going to make her p- shocking thing. They're going to make her pay the money back. Can you believe that? They, they want her to pay restitution. Well, how how very tacky of them to expect her to to be responsible for the money that she stole from them. And and they're going to trade, and they're still going to send her to jail for twenty years. Now, I'm I'm thinking the jails are a, a pagan invention. <laughs> Uh, the, I was reading from Exodus to the listeners during the last segment. Is that if a person steals, they have to pay it back, yeah. maybe twofold, fourfold. Mm-hmm. If they don't have anything, we're supposed to take them down and sell them. <laughs> That's what it says in Exodus. We sell them and we take and and, and they are indentured. That's yeah. what the Thirteenth Amendment says for criminal restitution. We indenture them and they have to spend their time not sitting on their stump in a jail cell. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to be working off the debt. Wouldn't that be a better choice? Well, it it really would be. And look, my prison director in Arkansas used to say, uh, and I quote him often, we lock a lot we of people up because we're mad at them, not because we're afraid of them. And and we need to lock people up we're afraid of. Now, what's all this trouble you done got yourself into with the master? Now, ain't no trouble. Bullshit. You was up to something. I ain't up to nothing. Unlike you, I'm going to take charge of my life. Ain't no charge. You's a slave just like the rest of us. You need to thank the good Lord that the master didn't burn your ass. The master ain't gonna do shit. Unlike you, I knows I'm supposed to be a free man. A free man? Ain't nothing free about a nigga in this country. Now you got something up your sleeve, boy. You need to let me know. Well, I gotta let you know. You ain't nothing but an Uncle Tom ass nigga anyway. Always kissing the master ass. You damn near as a house nigga. You don't know a goddamn thing. But whatever you up to, I wanna be a part of it. Part of it? Why should I believe you? Trust me. If I wanted to take your ass down, you would have been one down. Now tell me, what you's up to? I've been thinking about running. You've been thinking about what? I've been thinking about running. You've been thinking about what? I've been thinking about running. You've been thinking about what? I've been thinking about running. You've been thinking about what? I've been thinking about running. You've been thinking about what? I've been thinking about running. You've been thinking about what? I've been thinking about running. 
You've been thinking about what? I've been thinking about running. I hate the fact that I ain't free like how I want to be. I know there's more to life because this life is not right for me. And I've been talking to my friends about coming with me. Some of them scared. Some of them want the same thing I believe. I really miss my mama. Wish she was still here with me. She was the only one that ever really believed in me. She used to tell me stories about how she was almost free. But that was years ago. Now all I really got is me. I'm tired of picking cotton. Tired of getting beat for nonsense. No one to talk to. Me and the master, we've been having problems. If I can kill them, I would. Fuck the mistress, I would. Free all my niggas, I would. Leaning towards it, I should. I was meant to be free. Take a chance, watch I leave. If I die taking chances, well, it was all meant to be. Rather die before I slay, cause this won't get me nowhere. Y'all can have this fucking life, I swear I'm out of here. Gone. Alright, come on now. Let's go. Look, I got this new project, please. If you just, just get listen, out. Just why you acting like that? You ain't gotta get be like out. That. You about to get me fired. Get no, out. It's just a Fast food to period. Abolition. Abolition. You just heard a clip from Mike Huckabee and Jan Mickelson of Who Radio in Iowa speaking, and that was followed by Fuck Slavery by Ridge Hardy. Shout out to my man Ridge Hardy. Today is National mm-hmm. Day, 2021, the 11th observance of it. Let me say the names of these brothers I want you to remember. The new Hannibal Ross son. Uh, formerly of the Free Alabama Movement, presently of the National Freedom Freedom Movement. He's organized, helped organize at least two of the largest prison slavery, slavery work strikes in U.S. history. Alongside him, doing the same thing and more, bringing attention to the crimes against humanity happening in the Alabama prison systems was Brother Kinetic Justice. Both of those are facing retaliation with their lives on the line. And in California is Brother Sam Brown, who is the co-author of ACA3, which just passed unanimously in the Senate and was sponsored by uh, Senator uh, Sidney Kamlager. They have added 15 years onto his uh, sentence. He was supposed to be out four years ago. He's a model prisoner who has done everything they said and gotten three, four degrees while behind bars, as well as organizing uh, what we just saw, history coming into play with ACA3. Uh, and they brutalized him and added 15 years to his life. So keep those names in your mind, and let's remember that their lives are on the line. And for what we're doing right now, these are the risks and the penalties and the prices that are being paid, as Sister Joy has pointed out. Uh, I want to say thank you so much, uh, Sister Joy, for being here with us today. I hope we can get you back another day because there's so much to talk about, and uh, your opinion and your uh, perspectives is valuable. So thank you very much. Um, I want to give you this uh, time now to just, you know, have any final comments, point us in any direction you want us to go or whatever it is you'd like to say. Well, I appreciate, you know, the conversation, also the knowledge that you all are sharing and the passion about what ethical struggle looks like even when it's uncomfortable. And in terms of that clip, I mean, I'm sorry. You know, again, I told you about my tick of laughing when I'm pissed. Um, you know, <laughs> reactionaries are reactionaries, fascists are fascists. And if they want to blossom, you know, like weeds under, under this moment, 
then that's what they're going to do. So our response, again, is to highlight the need, our collective and individual need, to protect each other and protect ourselves. So this, whatever individualism tells you, it's lying to you, all right? Like collectively is how we move forward. And collectively, that's how we've done everything in 500 years that has made this even a quasi-democracy. And, of course, everybody has benefited from our struggle, right? So our struggles for liberation have helped to free all other sectors, demographics, genders, sexualities, mm-hmm. non-gender ideas, like just basic black struggles. The antidote to white supremacist imperialism, anti-blackness is black struggle. Do we do it perfectly all the time? Absolutely not. Are we divinely inspired? Absolutely, yeah. So where are the unions on this? If this is a strike, the unions need to step up. People can have awards and luncheons, honors, and whatever, whatever. Then the unions need to show up when people are striking inside. Democratic Socialists of America need to show up. The DNC needs to be held accountable. And stop telling me to vote for people if they can't be accountable Uh. to black people. Like, that's just like crazy making. And the world is crazy enough. In terms for the terrorists, right, it's like, okay, y'all are familiar. I know where I grew up. So, like, if you think slavery is a divine right of ruling, then remember that rebellion is an inevitable response. It's only a matter of time. And I'm not saying I'll do it, you'll do it, anybody do it. It's just, it's a natural response. W.B. Du Bois's favorite book was the biography he did on John Brown for a reason. And he does complain. Remember I said Charlie Mitchell sent me to read all his memoirs and stuff? He's complaining there's nobody radical. I'm like, what about Ida B. Wells? I mean, you sold her house with the white philanthropist, and then years later the NAACP is kicking you out, and now you want a radical. But, you know, stuff happens. But back to John Brown. He's writing this text, and the white editors are trying to dumb it down, break an emotional alliance. But, no, Du Bois loved black people. So even if we come late to the game, and I would say in some ways I came late to the game, Du Bois came late to the game. He, you know, he moved from the town to 10, the 10% elites who were going to come out of Morehouse, which named after Henry Morehouse, a white missionary philanthropist. And Spellman's named after a Rockefeller, Laura Spellman. So you know those colleges were engineered for something, and it wasn't black freedom. Just like the DMC mm. is engineered for something. It's not black freedom. But it's like the best we can do in the moment, whatever, whatever. So he transitions from that to being his version of a communist, socialist, radical, whatever, and then just like, let me go let me go to Africa so I can lay down, right, for eternity. But he loved us. If we love us, we don't allow predators in the house. But we need to figure out what the boundaries are for the house. And then what is a certain security apparatus to protect each other. 
And I feel in a lot of ways that conversation has been derailed by us constantly being redirected to the state. Again, I'm not saying don't do political organizing. I am not saying don't vote. I am not saying don't pass legislation. I'm just saying, if you have a predator in the house, you can't sleep at night. We will only have rest once we create a secure space for ourselves that reflects our love, our commitments, and we discipline ourselves. No more personal accumulation schemes that monetize black death or black suffering. If you're going to make that kind of money, then tithe, like in church. Like, just give a percentage back. But the bottom line is, empire accumulates through sheer terror and violence. That's how they got the money. So we are going to have to love ourselves through terror and violence directed against us and sustain ourselves into some kind of maroon formation that can emanate Ida B. Wells. It costs to kill us. Whether it's a strike, a petition, you lost your job in office, your daughter Sarah Huckabee is going to run for whatever governor we would love to campaign to make sure she's defeated. I don't care. But it costs to kill us. Thank you so much, Sister Joy. Uh, we appreciate you. We love you. Um, I'm sure that our listeners appreciate you as well, and uh, we hope to have you back soon. I know you and I are going to have conversations very soon, uh, and we'll go into some details about things we couldn't talk about on air. Uh, feel free to tune in with us until the end if you still want to. we still got one more segment left that I think you'll appreciate. Uh, we're going to take this time. I think to I'm going to have to... I've got okay. these little knocks on the door. I'm going to have to transition. But I okay. want to say I really, for me to be so honest means that I trust you three. And thank you for all the work that you all do. Thank you. Yes, uh, Thank you. That's the people we mess with that you can trust with your life. <laughs> all right. Uh, I'm going to go ahead all and right. thank you. Uh, Peace, sister. Much appreciated. Word. I want to go ahead and thank our our sponsors and partners for the program. Uh, that would be Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, and we do Prison Advocacy Network, Same Urge, Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, Black Talk Radio Network, of course. Um, remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash today for all the news, information, and music you hear on this program. Abolition Today is available on all major podcast platforms and simulcast, as we said, on the Black Talk Radio Network. Remember to join the movement also at abolishslavery.us and become a part of the solution. You can also go right now to ntheexception.com and click that link there to send a letter to your senators demanding that they support the joint resolution to repeal the 13th Amendment. We'll be back on Sunday, July the 4th. 2021 with a special program. July 4th, right? We Abolitionists on July 4th. You know it's going to be a special program. With that being said, I'm Max Parthas. This is Abolition Today. I want to pass it off to Brother Yusuf so he can introduce to you our final segment, which is Bridging the Gap. Peace off. For tonight's Bridging the Gap, we have Frederick Douglass read uh, 
We have Ozzie Davis reading Frederick Douglass's narrative on how he learned to write, and that will be followed up by a track called So Misinformed by Snoop Dogg and Slick Rick. Peace and blessings to you all. Peace, Max. Peace, Tag. Thank you, Sister Joy, for coming in. Thanks to all of our listeners. Until next week, peace. Abolition. Abolition. I was probably between seven and eight years old when I left Captain Anthony to live in Baltimore with Mr. Hugh Ald, my second master. Mrs. Ald was a woman of the kindest heart and finest feeling, but slavery soon proved its ability to divest her of these excellent qualities. Very soon after I went to live with Mr. and Mrs. Ald, she very kindly commenced to teach me the ABC. After I learned these, she assisted me in learning to spell words of three or four letters. Just at this point of my progress, Mr. Orr found out what was going on and at once forbade Mrs. Orr to instruct me further, telling her, among other things, that it was unlawful as well as unsafe to teach a slave to read. It will forever unfit him to be a slave, he said. He will at once become unmanageable and of no value to his master. These words sank deep into my heart. From that moment, I understood the pathway from slavery to freedom. Though conscious of the difficulty of learning without a teacher, I set out with high hope and a fixed purpose at whatever cost of trouble to learn how to read. But now, my former teacher became my greatest enemy. She became even more violent in her opposition to my learning to read than her husband himself. She was not satisfied with simply halting my lessons as her husband had commanded. Nothing seemed to make her more angry than to see me with a newspaper. I have had her rush at me with a face made up all of fury and snatch from me a newspaper in a manner that fully revealed her apprehension. The plan which I adopted was that of making friends of the little white boys I met in the street. As many of these as I could, I converted into teachers. With their kindly aid, obtained at different times and in different places, I finally succeeded in learning to read. When I was sent on errands, I always took my book with me, and by going one part of my errands quickly, I found time to get a lesson before my return. I was now about 12 years old, and the thought of being a slave for life began to bear heavily upon my heart. I resolved to run away. I looked forward to a time when it would be safe for me to escape. I was too young to think of doing so immediately. Besides, I wished to learn how to write, as I might have occasion to write my own pass. I consoled myself that I should one day find a good chance. Meanwhile, I would learn to write. The ideas as to how I might learn to write was suggested to me by being in Durgan and Bailey's shipyard and frequently seeing the ship's carpenter after hewing and getting a piece of timber ready for use, write on the timber the name of that part of the ship for which it was intended. When a piece of timber was intended for the larboard side, it would be marked thus, L. When a piece was for the starboard side, it would be marked thus, S. A piece for the larboard side forward would be marked thus, L, F. When a piece was for the starboard side forward, it would be marked thus, L, A. For starboard aft, it would be marked thus, S, A. I soon learned the names of these letters and for what they were intended when placed upon a piece of timber in the shipyard. I immediately began copying them and in a short time was able to make the four letters named. After that, when I met with any boy 
who I knew could write, I would tell him I could write as well as he. The next word would be, I don't believe you. Let me see you try it. I would then make the letters, which I had been so fortunate as to learn, and ask him to beat that. In this way, I got a good many lessons in writing, which is quite possible I should never have gotten in any other way. During this time, my copybook was the board fence, brick wall, and pavement. My pen and ink was a lump of chalk. With these, I learned mainly how to write. I then began and continued copying the letters in Webster's spelling book until I could make them all out without looking at the book. Thus, after a long, tedious effort for years, I finally succeeded in learning how to write. How to write. How to write. I would like to say that this gentleman and all other people who are not blessed with melanin at this point in time to understand that what has happened in our history is that you have been misinformed as much as we have been misinformed. Much of the information that is brought forth, not only from Dr. Muhammad, but other areas, other scholars, are not available to you, as the sister said, in your curriculum that you have for 400 years when you did not allow us to read and write and was being hidden. Whether you, sir, personally did that or not, it was a legacy that was passed on to you. And I end by saying the Holocaust is simply the greatest atrocity on film. Ours was not film. No apology, equality. Youth is future, let's move forward. Healthy mentality helps sanity. Melting heart help us up close enough. Facts had backwards and inaccurate. No post no backing up, tracking off. Good over evil, deceitful. Moral principle is simple. What will it take to get my peoples to connect together? You know it's black excellence, two feet come keep together. Picture a photograph of black folks knit together. In high definition, in high I would never. Turn my back on the block, I got the black on my back. Like James Brown, boy, I'm proud to be black to all my sisters. Mother Earth is birthed us, nurtures, it hurts us first, misheard To all my sisters, ain't no knocking your back. Politicians politicking with the gown and the cap. The house got flavor and I like it like that. Black girl power, yeah, I'm rocking with that. Those is getting kicked down, statues is getting ripped down. Presidents meeting overseas just to have a sit down. They trying to keep us from running up. I never tell you to get down, it's all about coming up. No apology, equality. Youth is future, let's move forward. Healthy mentality helps sanity. Melting pot help us up close enough. Facts had backwards and inaccurate. Tell folks no backing up, track it off. Good over evil, deceitful. Moral principle is simple. So what are you saying? The foundation was laid. Y'all nation was made off our ancestors back, back, back in the day. 400 years ago, y'all made us slaves. And you can hear it in the spirit coming deep from the grave. Life is made. Smoke so much dope, you want to day. But you ain't tripping, you getting paid. But who do you praise? But anyway, I read a history book, but I ain't learned nothing, dog. So I read the Bible, then the Holy Quran. Went to Jamaica to acquire my knowledge. That was the roster to my game got polished. The gang bang extreme with mileage. Trees and degrees like a train for college. Yeah. 
They try to keep us from running up. I never tell you to get down. It's all about coming up. No apology, equality. Youth is future. Let's move forward. Healthy mentality helps sanity. Melting pot help us up close enough. Facts had backwards and inaccurate. Cell phones are backing up, tracking us. Good over evil, deceitful. Moral principles are simple. Son. No apology, equality. Youth is future. Let's move forward. Healthy mentality helps sanity. Melting pot help us up close enough. Facts had backwards and inaccurate. Cell phones are backing up, tracking us. Good over evil, deceitful, moral principle, the simple Abolition. 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 Abolition